You may start the conversation now. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. How are you, Maria? How are you? Welcome. Thank you so much for your continued love for the people. Thank you for your commitment. We are with you. What can we take away in just 10 seconds uh, as we move from this room into our movements, into our families, into our lives? What takeaway should we take with us? That resistance works. That organizing works. That movements work. And to quote John Ashford, when you're committed to doing that which is right, the power of righteousness will never betray you. I thank you. I love you all. Hi, welcome to part two of Move 50 Years a Cult. Part one ended with an examination of a Move supporter who is much more well known than Move a man named Mumia Abu-Jamal. Over the last 30 years, you might have seen more free Mumia signs in the hands of MOVE members than free the MOVE 9 signs. How does Mumia Abu-Jamal fit into the MOVE story? I've had so many questions with regard to Mumia and tried to engage him directly via two letters, but got no response. Then I reached out to his lawyer and he came back saying Mumia was declining an interview. I have also reached out to key Mumia support organizations and individuals within those organizations and have gotten no response. The podcast has gotten a lot of material from different sources over the last two years. One source did provide some old audio cassettes, and I found an interview all about Mumia's move origin story. It was like finding treasure. Whatever you wanted to put on here, let me know. Hey, no, you interview with me. Oh, you want me to interview you? Yes. Okay. It's Pam Africa being interviewed by a loyal young supporter named Lori Allen. Today is July 4th, 1999. This is for the fourth issue of Network. Network is the self-published newspaper of the Friends of Move chapter in Norfolk, Virginia that came out of the free Mumia activists in Norfolk, Virginia, who had of course made contact with the chairwoman of the International Concerned Friends and Family of Mumia Abu-Jamal, Pam Africa. Two things to mention before you hear this interview. One, Pam Africa's natural speech pattern includes many, many you knows. And because the interview is quite lengthy, I made a decision to remove the you knows as a narrative choice just for the sake of the listening ear. Two, Bob and myself listened to this interview many times, making notes so that we could fact check and look for supporting information. And we found a lot. So throughout the interview, I'll pause and share what we found to be interesting and or related to what Pam Africa is telling Lori Allen. Okay, let's roll tape. What I really, really wanted for this issue was since... What about the victory at Norfolk? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, we're going to have stuff with that. We're going to have everything. But you have been working on this case and have been put in charge by the coordinator to put forth the defense for Mumia and raise the funds to get him free in the new trial. But you were also very personally involved with it and Mumia. And there's not a lot of people who have that personal reference with Mumia as a friend. Mm-hmm. So. Tell me about that, huh? Yeah. Okay, let me see, let me see when I first met Mumia. Um, it was just before the 70, um, 78 confrontation. Um, no, 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 no. It was before the 1970, before the 1970 confrontation. Um, I was a historic, when I first got involved with MOVE, I was just a neighbor down the street who was seen the situation unfold on May 20th, 1977. May 20th, 1977 is Guns on the Porch, when MOVE members dressed in fatigues, combat boots, and berets walk out onto their platform holding rifles. 
You're not going to do this exactly where it's written and saying, is it? No. With the at all. I'll format it. I'll, I'll take out all the O's. Oh, okay then. <laughs> and, uh, um, but when I started telling people about what it was, because I was political at that particular point, um, supportive of Councilman, uh, not yeah, Councilman Lucian Blackwell, um, Rizzo. Rizzo is Mayor Frank Rizzo, former police commissioner of Philadelphia, and to this day, the number one boogeyman in the MOVE narrative, next to Mayor Wilson Good, of course. Bob and I are unable to find anything supporting that Pam, formerly known as Jeanette Knighton, supported Rizzo in any way, so we're just not sure. And uh, MOVE was like an eye during that time to me. And um, when the situation happened on May 20th of 77, for the first time I'd actually heard what it was that MOVE was saying and saw for myself that people was really involved in MOVE, um, I started speaking out on what it was that I had seen and I saw a difference in the newspaper. As a result, I was beaten a lot by the police, locked up um, and never charged. And one of the reporters that came to my aid was like Mumia Jamal. The rest of the po- reporters that would be, um, this is Lori, y'all. The rest of the uh, reporters that came around, they wanted a story. And uh, they wanted to see where the bruises was, how many cops was it. And uh, did I say something to provoke the cops? Stuff like that. But Hold on a sec. When uh, I met Mumia, and uh, he came around after one of the times that I was harassed and beaten by the police telling what I had seen in the neighborhood. And um, he was really different from all the other reporters in the fact that he had a genuine concern for me and a concern for my children. At the point that when he would turn, I could tell the story of what had happened to me until I would look and see that microphone. When I would see that microphone come on, and I would automatically freeze up, right? Mm-hmm. And he would sit there real patiently and wait for me to, um, and talk with me until I would actually be able to get some more information out. Mm-hmm. And what he would do is, like, when I reheard the um, the actual tape, or what I, what it was that I had put out that it was saying, and uh, it was amazing, and uh, it was like the whole story, and it like sort of flowed, and because uh, where I would stop, he would like add a question. He just went right over it and redid it, and you never thought that um, I, I I couldn't handle it. And um, not only that, when he finished the interview and stuff, I mean, that he was really concerned about my kids. He would come back, he would check, he would call to see how we were doing. Hold on one second. Yeah. Hello, Lori? I'm here. Yeah, so um, that was like really the beginning of our friendship. And uh, um, then, you know, it wasn't that he was right up under, uh, under me at that particular point. Pam says that at this point, Mumia is, quote, not up under her yet, unquote. That's a move phrase indicating who is directing who in the move relationship. And it typically indicates who the recruiter was and now the manager of the new recruit. I would see him like up at the platform doing interviews with different people and on the streets talking to elderly people around near the young and what was happening with move. Then one day I was coming from a court case down at City Hall and I bumped into him and he was uh, right at 16th and Market. A young man had been thrown through a plate glass window, victim of police brutality, mm-hmm. and he was telling me that it was his brother and uh, um, who had been thrown through the plate glass window and he was like doing a big interview about it and it was a large demonstration. Mumia was born Wesley Cook. His younger brother, Billy Cook, sold tchotchkes on the corner of 16th and Chestnut in Center City. Billy Cook is also the driver of the Volkswagen Beetle pulled over by Officer Daniel Faulkner on December 9th, 1981, the night Faulkner is shot. And to come to find out years later, this was a friend of his by the name of Poppy who was like raised within their home. And, um, oh, that's a whole story that goes into this guy um, that was killed um, May 13th, and you know, who people believe was the other uh, rider 
in a car with Bill. Oh, yeah. But I'll, you know, I'll get back to that part, but just remember that part right okay. there. According to a May 23rd, 1985 obituary, Poppy is Kenneth Freeman, and it says he died of natural causes on May 14th, 1985. It is a decade later when the Free Mumia organizers and legal team propose that Kenneth Freeman was in the Volkswagen with Billy Cook on December 9th, 1981, and that Kenneth Freeman is the actual shooter and responsible for the murder of Officer Faulkner, not Mumia Abu-Jamal. Move had suggested that Freeman dying on May 14th was related to Move's deadly confrontation the day before and some kind of conspiracy. It never went further than that. Let me see. Right after 1978, when uh, Rizzo attacked Move, you know, you know, uh, Moody was coming by the house checking and seeing how we were doing there. Um, at one point, they had wrote a line and said that Zuka's and uh, machine guns and stuff, they said a gas man had told them that came into my house and he observed on the table bazookas and machine guns and stuff like that. And uh, the cops that went through my house raided and tore it all apart. And Mumia came when he had heard about that. And he um, really analyzed the whole story as being a lie. On January 2nd, 1979, a meter reader for Philadelphia Gas and Water goes out to 3207 Pearl Street. He reads the meter but then also reports back what he saw inside, which were 13 adults and six or seven children in the apartment, and that he observed a man cleaning a shotgun in the living room and saw the following, an automatic rifle hanging on the living room wall, a bazooka sticking out from behind the couch, and four 38 caliber revolvers, two automatic pistols, and assorted ammunition on the dining room table. The meter reader is scared, so he doesn't report it for 11 days. When he does, police give him a lie detector, and he passes, and so police get a warrant. When they go out, they see a sign posted on the back porch of 3207 that reads, The House That John Africa Built. But police don't find any weapons at this point. At this time, which is four months after the deadly first confrontation on August 8th, 1978, police have reason to believe that 3207 Pearl, rented to Jeanette Knighton, a.k.a. Jeanette Patton, is the new headquarters for MOVE, because the original one was demolished. 3207 is the apartment that Vincent Leapart first rented when he moved to Powelton Village in 1970. It is the apartment where he wrote the guidelines with Donald Glassy. From a tip, that's how they came in and tore my house up. But what had happened, he just started coming by and checking. And during the trial, well, I would see him during the 1978 trial. Mm-hmm. And um, he would like, um, you know, when you cut the radio and you would hear the truth about what was happening with Move, he would tell what Move was saying in the courtroom and what the police were saying. And when they banned Move from the courtroom, and all that didn't stop Mumia from seeing Move, because what he did, he would go up to the prison and that's how we got to spend a lot of time together because uh, a lot of times when I would go up to the prison because I was a member of the prisoners rights um, organization and uh, which I can go into the prison anytime to visit any inmate mm-hmm. and I would go up there a lot of times and Mumia would be there as a journalist. The prisoners rights council that Pam is referencing as giving her extra visiting privileges at the jails and prisons is something that has come up in our research before. And we've only ever seen it in connection with known or underground MOVE members like Pam Africa and the alleged MOVE cult lawyer, Angela Martinez. We would wind up spending hours up in uh, Holmesburg with the House of Correction. He was doing interviews and, um, um, after a while, when he was leaving his job, you know, he was up to prison every day. You know, sometimes he'd be early in the morning to late at night. And um, he wasn't a MOVE member then, you know, but he was like by the uh, power of John Africa, the information that MOVE people had, just as I myself was. And you know, we would be going back and forth up to the prison. And uh, when the uh, coordinator, oh, then plus he would come over the house afterwards and um i have a famous shrimp um shrimp and rice dish i was making at that particular time <laughs> or like six di- dinner form and we would be talking about different things and um 
when our coordinator, John Africa, and the people was arrested in Rochester, New York, mm -hmm. Umi was one of the people who rode up with us uh, to Rochester and uh, to see what was going on there. The coordinator, John Africa, is apprehended by ATF and police in Rochester on May 13, 1981. Pam was indeed up there. There's a photo of her demonstrating outside the courthouse with a long-lived John Africa shirt on. Was a friend. He was a journalist. And, uh, uh, and we got to learn more and more about each other. We found out on the trip about his Panther days. In fact, that's when Ramona was, um, I think, Ramona was you around about two years then. Well, yeah, you came in 79. When that situation happened with the coordinator, was that 80? When they uh, arrested him in Rochester? Uh, in 81, yeah, in 81, um, all of us had went up uh, to Rochester, uh, Rochester, New York. Um, another thing that was uh, amazing about Mamiya is that um, when we was in front of City Hall, see, once he had found out the truth, there was no turning him around. And um, his journalistic um, piece, because he was a court reporter, and uh, he would finish his court reporting and during lunchtime he would come down in the evenings with us and shake the jug and raise funds and get on the microphone outside and tell people what it was that he knew and uh, um and a lot of his friends his colleagues and i uh, was looking at him like you're out your mind risking your everything and all uh, behind that they knew what he was doing was right but it wasn't uh, a right thing as far as the journalists and his colleagues uh, seen it when he became the president of the Association of Black Journalists one of the first things that he did was invite us to um, speak about the uh, case um, and right after that that's when we all went to Rochester in fact he did an article uh, on the coordinator uh, two-piece article um, that uh, the Philadelphia Tribune paid him to do two pieces no he didn't because he freelanced that um, in fact, you know what? You know, we need to find them articles so you can reprint them. That's what I was just about to say. <laughs> um, he did on John that you got the Mona. Oh, Mona got him, my child. Mona got everything, Mona. honey. Okay. <laughs> yep. Um, um, can, can I get those facts to me tomorrow night? Mona, she said, can she get them facts to her tomorrow night? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, take them with Susan's. Yeah, we'll fax them from Susan's. Okay. Yeah. Um, then right after that, when the coordinator came home, the pressure picked up right. Move was found guilty, and the coordinator wrote the, um, the judge's letter at that particular point. Mm. And Mumi was completely blown away by the judge's letter. You had a judge's letter, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, um... Right at 78. We, I mean, right at... I think um, I've read it, like, maybe four times. Judge's letter, and you know, when they found, um, the, not, not the old judge's letter... Um, that was, um, after they was convicted, because the day that they, um, was convicted and the time was given, that's when Laverne and Louise and them read it outside the, um, city hall. Louise and Laverne are the biological sisters of John Africa, a.k.a. Vincent Leapart, and they were MOVE members at this time. The coordinator had, like, picked up the pressure of exposing what was happening with MOVE, mm -hmm. and, um, um, during this time, I think Mona, Mona, you was the first one to go to jail then, wasn't you? When they, when they started putting that pressure on us, how did you wind up in jail then? You was already in jail when all of us started going through. When Therese, when they uh, beat all of us up in City Hall, was you already in or you was out? Oh, Mona, was you in jail then? No. You wasn't in jail? Yeah, where you was at, uh, up the house? No, I'm not talking about December 3rd. I'm trying to, because what I'm trying to do is bring her the story of, yeah, because Teresa and Ron and them got beat up first. And um, Mumia covered that. And because uh, what was happening, oh, I know what was happening. That was during the time that um, Bert, Carlos, and Dennis was on trial. Yeah, with, uh, with Judge Shoya. And um, the coordinator had, because uh, they kept trying to bring Bert down and uh, bring move people down mm -hmm. and have them sit in them smoke-filled cells and stuff, and they would keep them in there real late. And um, 
uh, what else also was happening. What 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 was that? The Stanley Cup was one or something. Yeah. Well, that was it. You know, it it one of the uh, Philadelphia uh, sports groups, the Seventy Sixers or the Stanley uh, Hockey was one in uh, is the World Cup and uh, people from around the world was there, and the coordinator had us going down City Hall putting out information mm-hmm. when people would come in and uh, you know. They would hear the information, and then they want to know what could they do. We would send them up to the uh, courtroom. From there, they would still want to know what they could do. We would send them to the mayor, who was Rizzo at that time. Mm. And that, no, Green was the mayor then. And um, we would send them there, and we would send them over to the city managing director, which was that uh, bomb dropper, uh, uh, Wilson Good, uh, uh, him. And... It was just a lot of pressure. So what they had to do, they wanted to get rid of us. So for, first what they did, they um, locked, uh, they arrested me and Abdul and some other people in front of City Hall. And then we got out, we came right back, all of us was right back down there. Then um, right after that, we um, um, got back, yeah, we uh, started getting back. We was back out there, and Teresa Africa, who was killed May 13th, Rhonda Africa, who was killed May 13th, they was in the courtroom, and when they got ready to leave out, uh, the guards jumped them and beat them up, and then they locked them up. Yeah, I heard about uh, that. Yeah. Then uh, this was all starting, like, around the end of November, going into the beginning of November. Wasn't Rhonda pregnant? No. No. Uh-uh. I thought somebody was pregnant. Uh, or they just repeatedly kicked her in her private part? You're talking about, uh, you're talking about earlier. You're talking about Bert. I'm, oh, I'm in 1981 now. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. And I'm saying Mumia was there covering that, and it, like, really fucked him up to see this kind of stuff happening and the reaction of, like, politicians and the community on a whole. Mm-hmm. And it was almost just like they had... Mooney was the only voice that was actually speaking out because they had ordered a blackout. You know, no news media was supposed to cover us. The only people, person was covering us at that time was Mamiya, and we was taking some terrible beatings and all. Um, when they let Rhonda, uh, uh, when they let Teresa back out of jail, um, we had um, um, started putting pressure on Shoya by, like, uh, wherever he'd be at. And, uh, like, when he got out off the train at the... Um, at Suburban Station, we would be there with our bullhorns. We'd never walk up on him, and because uh, it wasn't a strategy, but just exposed me, pointing out that Kendall Scheuer, you know he's German, right? Nope. Kendall Scheuer is not German. We checked. And uh, we was telling people that had people spoke out on Hitler, six million Jews wouldn't be dead now, and we was going to expose this motherfucker for uh, what he was doing to our family. And Pam Africa has just said, that Move was following the judge on his route home. And so I went to see if I could find any record of Move court hearings involving Judge Scheuer. Bingo. Philadelphia Inquirer, December 23rd, 1981. Three Move members convicted in 77 incident. The story is recounting the seven-week trial of three MOVE members charged with riot, conspiracy, and weapons offenses and making terroristic threats back in May 1977. You know, guns on the porch. The trial is happening in 1981 because all three defendants were fugitives and apprehended with Vincent Leapart, a.k.a. John Africa, on May 13, 1981 in Rochester, New York. The three MOVE members found guilty are Dennis Sims Africa, the youngest and least spoken about MOVE member. He's also the biological nephew of Vincent Leapart, Carlos Perez Africa, and Alberta Wicker Africa. The judge in this case, Judge Scheuer. This December 23rd, 1981 story includes the mention of other legal action pending because of incidents involving MOVE sympathizers during the course of the trial. And I'll quote from the story. On November 16th, Three persons, identified as MOVE sympathizers, were arrested in the hall outside the City Hall courtroom when police said they attempted to grab Scheuer during a recess. At this time, Judge Scheuer is 77 years old. And uh, and Mumi was like covering this every day on the air. And uh, you know how uh, the MOVE people was consistently going after Scheuer and putting out what was happening. Then he'd be telling what was going on in the trial. Then, um... What had happened, they jumped us, and um, they jumped me, Teresa, and Abdul, and uh, they broke my leg, and um, 
beat me up real bad. The um, beat Abdul up. The uh, Teresa Africa, her arm was actually pulled out the socket, and all uh, um, you know what I mean, dislocated. Yeah. Yeah. Pam, who was going by Jeanette then, along with Abdul and Teresa Brooks, both MOVE members, were arrested on November 16th. And this is reported in the Philadelphia Inquirer. It says that Judge Scheuer was in the hallway outside the courtroom where he was presiding over the trial of Alberta, Carlos, and Dennis when Jeanette, Abdul, and Teresa began shouting profanities at the judge and then attempted to grab or strike Judge Scheuer. Courtroom sheriffs were able to subdue all three of them and get Scheuer safely to his chambers. Sheriffs were injured and the three MOVE members were injured. It says Pam was treated for a leg injury at a local hospital and that all three MOVE members refused to give their ages or addresses. And um, he covered that. In fact, that was the last story that Mumia covered. It was the story of what had happened uh, uh, to me because once I got out of jail, he came to the house. I was My, uh, my leg was like in a, a cast and um, he did a story called Evolution of a, uh, of a Revolution, something like that. Mm-hmm. I got that story around here somewhere too. I'm sitting there looking all homely with this little cast on my leg. <laughs> uh, but um, I was home uh, with the cast on my leg um, when we found out that what had happened. Pam is referring to December 9th, 1981, when Mumia is arrested for the shooting of Officer Faulkner, and he is in the hospital. Uh, The coordinator um, had Laverne, Rose, I mean Rose, who, Mona, (laughs) and Mo, wasn't it? And and, Mo was there too. Yeah, Mo. And was Teresa Africa there? Pam just said that the coordinator, John Africa, sent them to go see Mumia at the hospital on December 9th, 1981. Well, was Teresa in jail? I think, was Teresa still in jail? Because I know they had, pulled the, they had pulled her arm out the socket, and they had let me out, you know, because of the pressure behind them uh, breaking my leg and stuff. And, uh, um, but um, what had happened, they was actually getting rid of all the people and all uh, who was putting out the information about what was going on with Move right, right then. Mm-hmm. And all uh, they had Mona in jail. They had. Um, was you in jail when I got there, Mona? Or you had just come, went home? And all uh, in '81 when my leg was broke. You wasn't there then. And I'll come tell you, we was like revolving. <laughs> See, I know that y'all had like hundreds of cases. Yeah, we've been in like jail 15, together. 20 uh, people. Yeah. And you guys had hundreds of cases. So I can't even imagine you guys trying to keep track of that. Yeah. system has like hundreds of people uh, trying to do that. <laughs> Let alone you guys trying to yeah. keep track of how many times you've been in prison. Yeah. And uh, my leg was broke during that time. And like I said, that was the last story that he had did. But the coordinator at that particular point had sent move people down there to deal with with Romia mm-hmm. to the hospital in the midst of all them cops and stuff and you know how they hate us and we've been there with them ever since and you know, I was on crutches and you know, when um, I was sent out and you know, to start the committee mm-hmm. you know, for Romia and you know, um, what had happened and you know, when you know when things happen horrible, sensational, and all uh, people come in, they all joined in, and then you wonder what all these politicians who was politicking and try to misuse Mumia, and all, uh, so we were sent in to uh, set the pace, and all, uh, for that, uh, for what was happening. We've been there ever since, and all, uh, um, when I got, uh, uh, in fact, I was going to the, uh, the coordinator had coordinated me to head the, uh, West Philadelphia Committee in Support of Mumia, and which later on became the uh, Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia at Bujamal, and then it became the International Concerned Family and Friends of Mumia at Bujamal. The coordinator sends three MOVE members to see Mumia that night. That's an activity. I will also add that Mumia refuses medical treatment for hours at the hospital, and then finally relents and has surgery to remove the bullet. Refusing medical treatment is straight out of the MOVE playbook. But, you know, during that whole time, even when he was here in the county, and uh, like I said, I was a member of Prisoners' Rights Council and other MOVE members, and I uh, was able to go in and spend a lot of time with And he, he was there with MOVE men at that particular point, and 
for a person that was going to jail and was first faced with murder, and I'm not trying to make light of the situation, and of being in jail with moved people, and all was an experience for him. Because I think Frank was still there then, when he first came through. Who was in jail with him when he first came through? Oh, no, 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 because first he was in, in, the, in the hospital. Mm-hmm. But at one point they brought the men and stuff back down, and Mumi was there with him. Remember in the episode, The Coordinator, Ramona Johnson speaks so fondly about being locked up with other MOVE members. It's like being in MOVE headquarters, but just in jail or in prison. Yeah. Is that when they beat everybody up and took them back up? It was right before that. Oh, that's right. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, because just before... Right, on December the 3rd, yeah, because Mumi was real fucked up. No, um, what had happened, he was covering the whole thing. And uh, because Right here, Pam is remembering and talking about something very important, and Ramona Africa is chiming in in the background. This is something that has not been looked at in the Mumia Abu-Jamal timeline. December 3rd, seven MOVE members who are witnesses in other MOVE trials are in Holmesburg Prison so that they're close to the Philadelphia courthouse. Five of these MOVE members are part of the MOVE 9, the ones serving their life sentences for the murder of Officer James Ramp. They've been up in the state prisons. They're now all together in Holmesburg. And for some reason, they're allowed to have a meeting in one cell. And when a guard walks by, one of the MOVE members gets his attention and then grabs the guard through the bars and takes his keys. Concerned this is an escape plan happening in real time, guards have to enter into the cell to get the keys. And reportedly, the 10 prisoners are armed with sharpened sticks, mop handles, and bricks, and have pulled their bunk mattresses as shields. 17 guards, armed with nightsticks, shields, and garden hoses, enter the 11-foot by 7-foot cell to battle with 10 prisoners seven of them move members. Everyone sustains some kind of injury. The prison superintendent tells a reporter that the move inmates had planned the disturbance in an attempt from being transferred back to the state correctional institutions. By causing this melee, new charges would be brought in Philadelphia, therefore keeping them local instead of sending them back to state prison for their sentences related to the ramp murder. Remember, John Africa is the coordinator. He is the one who gives you your activity, whether you're in prison, jail, the courthouse, move headquarters with him at an outpost, it doesn't matter. You're a move member, he's your leader, he gives you your activity, no questions asked. Mumia Abu-Jamal goes up to Holmesburg Prison and to the House of Corrections to see move members just days before Officer Faulkner is shot on December 9th. This is what Pam is telling Lori. Um, you said earlier, so I can't, I just, this has always just been kind of one of those things where everybody wonders exactly what Mumia's position is with MOVE. And, mm-hmm. Well, and you know like, what MOVE, well, I mean, like oh, he came around much like everybody else. Uh-huh. Mumia came, came around to cover a story. And all and you wind up getting and, and got the truth and, uh, and was trapped. That's what all of us was trapped by the truth. And, uh, and not, not only the truth that, that somebody was saying, but, you know, we was all experiencing it. Just as you, I mean, you're not experiencing on the same level that we experience it on, but you're seeing things that is really blowing your mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, an extent that this government will go to, and, uh, and anybody that, you know, is seeking truth and want to be right, you know, winds up gravitating to what it is that they say. And are uh, you, uh, because our disbelief, I could not believe, I mean, it's not like I gave a damn about right or wrong, because I was in the smoking joint and partying and a lot of bullshit, really. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm trying to explain that. Um, gave a damn about righteousness or anything. It was just that saw something there and you know, I was a part of a miraculous miracle because the people were getting ready to kill move. Yeah, like we I mean 
we got into it because we went and bought this cool CD from a band we liked, and there was a picture of Mumia's book in it. And so we got curious and read it. <clears throat> and then there was your phone number in the back of it. No, no, I'm sorry, in the back of the CD case. Uh-huh. And so we just called, and, and we've been hooked. I mean, you guys are more addictive than any drug out there. Yeah. Lori said we're more addictive than any drug out there. She said cause they, they, uh, they had a friend that played in this really cool band who had this CD with a picture of Mumia's book. The Live no, Death Row. It was Rage Against the Machine. Oh, it was Rage Against the Machine. Rage Against the Machine has put on benefit concerts and publicly spoken out in support of Mumia Abu-Jamal since the mid to late 1990s. You know what? I, you know what? Because the stories of how people got involved—that's that's an altogether book in itself. Uh-huh. Uh huh. How did this one get involved? How did you know, How the hell did Rage Against the Machine get in as involved as? Now I know how y'all got involved, and uh, I know how Mona got. But it's stories, and uh, we might do a, a, a thing on um, how did you get involved with Move? <laughs> <laughs> well, um. Actually, I'll just ask you this while I got you on the phone. Um, and uh, the ones who got involved in the beginning, when there was no examples like what we... Because we all got examples to fall on, right? You got something to read that will bring you closer to. But the people who first met the coordinator when there was no examples, because they are the examples of uh-huh. what it is that the coordinator can do, like Bert, Rhea, uh-huh. Bo. Yeah, Delbert was talking about that when I interviewed him. Yeah. He was talking about how, because um, his references specifically are Bert and Rhea. Yeah. And he like, and we we talked to him twice, and both times he had, he had to bring them up. Yeah. Oh, you And he'll, he brought it up in the letter, too. Yeah. He just, and he always says that he thanks the coordinator for having that opportunity to work with them. Yeah, yeah. Just a note here. This is July 1999. Bert is Alberta, and she's in charge of MOVE, but she's the secret leader. And Rhea is her second-in-command. And Alberta is in a full-on custody battle with John Gilbride over their son, Zachary. Um, I know you feel a difference like when you deal, deal with Bert and Rhea. Well, I haven't met Bert. Uh, yeah, but what well, you know when you speak to Rhea? Oh yeah, I mean like we we call her like Tony. You know how he doesn't call a lot. Yeah. I don't get to talk to Rhea that much because any time that we call, Tony's on the phone. <laughs> so. You know what it is? He feel that closeness from the coordinator. That's what all of us gravitate to. Exactly. You know, from Bert and Rhea, and all because the coordinator put he coordinated them years ago for this activity. This is July 1999. MOVE has publicly said that John Africa, the coordinator, was killed by the government on May 13, 1985 in the confrontation, 14 years earlier. But here Pam is talking about him in the present tense. And that's why when you talk with Dell, and them, you always hear them refer and all to Bert and Rhea. Mm-hmm. So because that's how the coordinator coordinated. Each of us have like our own activities uh-huh. and we all gravitate to Bert and Rhea and uh, for uh, information and all because they was closer to the coordinator and they have it to give to us. He well, one before I even forget about this is um, is Mumia considered a move member or is he considered a supporter or what? What did John Africa consider him? He's a supporter. He's a supporter. No, he's he's a very strong, committed supporter. Uh-huh. Okay, because, um, like, a lot of people have asked that, and I haven't been able to give a straight answer because I really don't know, because, like... You know, but his belief is the teachings of John Africa, his, um, his everything, you know, as, as you see in his writings. Right. You know, where he gets his strength and his commitment and all that, and all uh, comes through. You know, see, because it was no mistake that... Mumia got to spend all that time up at the prison mm-hmm. with MOVE members. And, uh, you know, because he had he, never been to jail, but he was on the other side with MOVE members, seeing how MOVE members carried themselves. And, uh, you know, and um, their commitment, you know, he wanted to know what 
is it that had them to the point that move members were so committed and this family he wanted that and all you and um that when he would he would actually go up to move to the prisons to feel better in the evenings and all um his wife didn't have competition from another woman Mm -hmm. You know, she had competition from the teachers of John Africa because when he got off from work, that's where he went. <laughs> Down to the prison, it was like, she said it was a freaky thing to her. And all, for lack of another word, she said, here he is, get up, and every time you try, oh, where, where you at? I'm up to prison. Uh, you know, it, all right, you covered a story, but this was going on for months. Uh -huh. He would get up there. I mean, he had got to the point that he would get up early in the morning when he didn't have nothing to do. On Saturdays or so, or so, or he had things because he had became unavailable for the people that he used to hang around with, uh -huh. smoke joint with, and all shoot the shit with, and all. It was like, damn man, you up to prison again? You know what the fuck is with you? This is how they was talking with him. What are you fucking obsessed with them people? And that's what it became, and they they couldn't understand it. Well, what is Mumia's understand the Mumia Abu Jamal who was always someplace else and all. Uh, this tape recorder and uh, thing, but what was happening in our little did we know, and uh, because the coordinator sees far into the future, and uh, he was being prepared for the activity that he went on then. And mm -hmm. uh, it's no mistake, uh, Mumia is where he's at, bringing attention to I me. Mean, uh, the the situation of death row, have nobody have ever brought attention to that kind of situation like Mumia, and Mumia you know that. Um, that, that it comes from the coordinator. And he never let anybody forget it. And you know, he's had people that, you know, man, if you just don't, if you drop, move, you'll have all this support and that and that. They never could do it. He never could do it. And years later, people found out what it was. Pam just tells Lori that Mumia had been prepped for the activity he is on now by the coordinator. Mumia is on death row. I hadn't really thought of that being an activity. I, get, I, I still don't see. I'm still learning how to look at things from a different way. But um, on top of exposing the industry, like on, for the prisons and death row, also his articles themselves have gotten that much more attention mm -hmm. because of the circumstances of where he is, he's able to be even more vocal. Yeah, yeah. It was only heard really in Philadelphia. Yeah. I didn't hear oh, you know, it. The revolution and all the coordinated, everybody, I'm not saying that he put him in jail. Oh, no, no, no. And all you no. know. The former Genie Africa told us in episode seven that prison was a move activity. And Genie herself had only left move four months before Mumia is arrested for shooting Officer Faulkner. <laughs> what I'm saying is. Um, the fact that he's able to put out information the way that he puts out information and that he's able to attract the world and all, um, he'll tell you where it comes from. And all you, and each of us, I don't care what we're on, the, um, uh, uh, each and every last one of us, our everyday living is an activity. Mm -hmm. And our uh, activity for life. And when you see, when, when, when you t uh, deal with Momia, that's his reference. And that's what that's what actually keeps him going. You know, he don't he tell you he don't want to die. You know, but you know he's not afraid of it. Right. You know, um, that activity that he's on now, he don't want to be there, but he's there, and he know what it is. You know, and he understand why he's there. Mumia Abu Jamal is on death row, waiting for an execution date, and the move nine have been in prison for 21 years. And then see, move people, you know, is on the activity, because you, you know that they can come out there anytime they want. Mm -hmm. All they got to do is denounce move, denounce John Africa. You know, the examples are there. Yeah, because there's other people who got out. Yeah. By doing that. Yeah. But look, at, but, but look at the problems that they got, each and every last one of them. Right. So I got to get ready because I got to do an uh, interview at, um, uh, not an interview, at 9 o'clock I got to go on a conference call. Okay, because I got to... Yeah, it's almost 8. 
haven't done any of the bathroom things or anything, and I'm sitting here twisting and turning. Oh, well, I'm, I'll talk to Mona when I call back, because I needed to ask her a few things. All right, then. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. On a move. On a move. Move gets Lori Allen and her husband, Tony, to relocate up to Philadelphia in the year 2000. They then encourage them to have a child and move. After the murder of ex-move member John Gilbride, Tony and Lori leave Move and become public whistleblowers by doing a major tell-all story in the Philadelphia Inquirer in October 2004. And then Tony sets up his blog, sharing what he knows about both Move, Mumia, and the circumstances leading up to the murder of John Gilbride. Tony's blog was crucial in helping the podcast understand Move. And it led us to the John Gilbride murder story. Examining John Gilbride's 2002 murder was our entry point to going deeper into MOVE and uncovering sources and documents that exposed allegations of child abuse, domestic abuse, trafficking, medical neglect, denial of education, and other crimes. Going deep into MOVE leads to Mumia Abu-Jamal, and then it all circles back to John Gilbride. John Gilbride was a MOVE member when the Free Mumia effort was given to Pam Africa as her main activity by leader Alberta Africa, John's wife, and then the mother of his child, Zachary. John was privy to all of the inside information on the Mumia efforts. John knew Mumia, and Mumia knew him. As a defector who was not willing to back down about his son, John was a liability to MOVE and the Free Mumia Movement which the former Marine Africa explained in part one, is a business. John Gilbride knew enough inside information that it is quite possible that the harassment campaign waged against him and his family was more than just about the custody case. The global political and financial support for Mumia was weaponized against John Gilbride from 1998 through 2002 and beyond, possibly it was to intimidate John to not even think about being a whistleblower, like Donald Glassy, or like Tony Allen and Kevin Price would eventually become. 11.30 p.m. on Thursday, September 26, 2002, 34-year-old John Gilbride pulls his 1985 Ford Crown Victoria into a parking spot in front of his apartment at Ryan's Run in Mapleshade, New Jersey. Someone approaches the driver's side of John's car. The person or people shoot John Gilbride at least four times. It is a bullet to the head that kills 34-year-old John Gilbride. When I told my wife, she screamed, you wouldn't believe, and she just fell to the floor and cried her eyes out. Uh, Here I go. If they tell you the biggest pain you feel in hell is the absence of presence of God, then this is the worst grieving you'll ever have short of that. But this single event destroyed a family of five. 34-year-old John Gilbride spent half of his life in MOVE, or dealing with MOVE. At the end of his life, he was fighting to get his only son, John Zachary Gilbride, out of MOVE. And so John's murder and the impact on his family and his son Zachary is yet another tragic result of MOVE. This podcast investigation is over 20 hours, exposing the strategy of John Africa, the coordinator, the leader of the MOVE cult. And the tally of allegations is this, incarcerated adults totaling more than 350 years in prison, broken families, dead children, dead adults, destroyed homes, neglected and abused children, destroyed lives, fraud, terror, abuse, lies. All for what? Was it for the whim or perverse amusement of a power-hungry individual who might fit the description of a sociopath? And then this individual is succeeded by his closest followers to carry on with the alleged abuse, control, and crimes? It is abusive. Physically, mentally, sexually, you feel so trapped and alone, and you feel like there's no way out. I felt like I was just born to be tortured. There's things that was happening to us that we didn't even realize was a crime. Why the fuck didn't anyone help us and intervene? The last name Africa 
What does that mean to you? To me, it's a name that I wish I never had. The, the Philadelphia police, the Philadelphia media, City Hall, everybody has been had. You've all been played. Move is a lie. All of this is about money. So many people have brought up money. Was this all about money? Is this all about money now? In March 2019, Bob was a Move and Mumia supporter and wanted me to do a podcast about them as revolutionaries victimized by the government. Neither of us could have expected what we found. And we made this podcast so that you could hear their stories and so that those in power could hear their stories. We need the truth to be out there. People need to be held accountable and people need to understand what Move is. We're doing this as a cautionary tale because obviously people have fallen for it for the past 50 years. No one else needs to fall and get trapped in the Venus flytrap of the Move organization. You have been listening to Murder at Ryan's Run. This is the end of 2022, and for now, the end of season two of the podcast. As Bob and myself shift gears, but continue to research and investigate, I promise we're not done by a long shot, and you will hear from us, either here with an update or in another format. Thank you to everyone who participated in the podcast. Your generosity and bravery fuels the intentions of our storytelling. Big shout out to the reporters at the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Philadelphia Daily News, the Courier Post, specifically Murray Dubin, Mike Leary, Kitty Caparella, and most importantly, Jason Nark. Eternal gratitude for the work of Michael and Randy Boyette for their book, Let It Burn. And I want to thank you for being a listener. The messages and emails you've sent in mean so much. Thank you. Check us out on social media for photos and bonus content. If you have any information related to our ongoing investigation into the 50-year history of MOVE, please reach out. Email run at gmail.com or message us on social media. This episode was reported, written, edited, hosted, and executive produced by me, Beth McNamara. Additional archival research and executive producing by Robert Helms. Be sure to follow the podcast, and if you're finding it informative and interesting, please share it with friends. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.